On today's episode, we're delighted to have Chicago actor and vocalist Anne Sheridan Smith joining us. Anne has been performing in the Chicago theater community since 1996. A couple of appearances before the pandemic include an immersive play called Southern Gothic and a new musical about the Cubs winning the World Series called Miracle. Anne's weirdest gig story describes her experiences performing on Navy Pier. Enjoy her story entitled Tap, Tap, Tap. Chicago actors are scrappy and appreciated in New York and L.A. for their strong work ethic. This is my tribe. Whether or not we've grown up here like I have, I believe we inherit a Midwestern pragmatism that makes us durable. Our work may contain magic, but the hustle is as natural as breathing and the work itself unromantic. I also think our pragmatism, with an ego we've kicked into submission, can drive us towards some pretty suspect gigs out of the simple need to work. Sometimes they don't look weird at first, but then, creeping in out of the shadows, Mr. Surreal makes an appearance and creates an experience for the memoir I'll never write. Like the time when I was singing with a trio I had sung with for 20 years. We were seven years old when we started. We opened for Leslie Gore. The gig was pretty exciting, and we enjoyed performing in this cool factory-turned-live performance venue in Michigan. Her band was there, but Ms. Gore was late. We got a panicked, universal sign from the back of the house to stretch. Well, that went on for about 20 minutes as we added songs we never intended to perform that evening. The tale goes that when Leslie Gore walked through the door to find her way backstage, she looked around disapprovingly and said, This place is a toilet. That incident put a nice patina of weird on the experience. We got our picture taken with her after, and I appreciate the chuckle I get when I think about it. The weird gig in my life that takes the cake is a period of two to three years in my 20s when my primary source of income was singing in an a cappella octet called the Navy Pier Players. I rode my bike to work along the lakefront from the Lincoln Square neighborhood to one of Chicago's top tourist attractions. And I'm going to quote a writer named Todd Prusak, who accurately described Navy Pier as your average run-of-the-mill urban revitalization mall and restaurant and tchotchke complex. I would begin my day at work in a dressing room, removing my sweaty bike clothes, towel off, and jump into a polka-dotted pink-and-white costume to sweat some more as Tootsie Mae, the candy queen of Chicago. We were a cast of misfit Chicago references that ranged from, oh, I get it, to, what the f***? For instance, Guy Tour. You guessed it, Chicago Tour Guide. Sissy Boomba, Chicago Bears cheerleader. Mrs. O'Leary, easy. But without getting up close to read the name tag, Peggy Pong, Hank Lloyd Wright, 
Flaming Jack Turner? WTF. I channeled a character who represented our city's bragging right as the candy capital of the world. With Tootsie Roll, Brock's, Frango, Wrigley Gum, Fannie Mae, Blommer's Chocolates, and Mars Candy all having roots in Chicago. My costume was a short dress with puff sleeves, a crinoline petticoat, sweetheart neckline, and belted with a pink sash and a big-ass bow on the back. I wore a wide-brimmed hat with oversized cellophane-wrapped candy piled on top, and pink, chunky-heel Mary Jane shoes with lace-trimmed bobby socks. I looked like an adult Halloween version of Little Bo Peep. Old men were particularly drawn to me. All of us were actors who sang, so the job was in our wheelhouse, and I think we all felt pretty good about being able to sustain ourselves and our skills, but it wasn't without its drama and hilarity. The job was, well, with WBEZ in the building, Ira Glass, host and producer of the radio and television series This American Life, had his hot take on the Navy Pier players that I must admit was pretty spot on. They do four shows a day, five days a week, and they work up a sweat, all that pep, dancing and singing. Seeing them belt out an a cappella rendition of, say, Bohemian Rhapsody in the food court to a group of tourists and stunned-looking children, you do not think this is an easy job. Anything but. One of our most popular locations to sing was in front of the grand staircase that leads up to the Ferris wheel. We stood facing our audience, who sat on the steps to enjoy a 20-minute set, kicking off with songs that introduced our characters, cluing people into why we had buildings or candy on our heads. Gloria Bankston, the Magnificent Mile Shopper, sang lead on our first intro song, a parody of You Better Shop Around. Now, before I take us any further, I should set the scene... These stairs acted as raked or bleacher seating that placed visitors' laps at eye level. It's bizarre that people visiting this glorified mall in Lake Michigan often dress like they are at the beach or a flea market. There was no way to avoid noticing these poor decisions in spread-eagle fashion and occasional skid-marked underwear. Men often wore loose-fitting athletic shorts or, God forbid, Speedos, and this put them at high risk for a scrotum appearance. I never understood how they couldn't feel it, baking in the hot sun. So to keep us entertained, we developed a code that was integrated into the lyrics of whatever we were singing. It became a Where's Waldo situation, and it often happened near the beginning of the set because, well, with eight sets of eyes, we were on it. Gloria Bankston was a hawk and would typically drop a word into her lyrics. Saks, as in Saks Fifth Avenue, worked on both levels. And if you were watching us, you might witness a laser-focused search from this oddball crew of singers descend upon the audience. If she saw a penis, she'd just yell, Hog! which sent us into teary-eyed laughter as we hunted for dong on the cement steps. Between sets, we paired off and strolled the pier to annoy, I mean engage with the visitors, in character. 
I chose a high-pitched voice to save my vocal cords. We all learned how to build up the necessary stamina to withstand the relentless talking and singing for seven hours a day. Our job also involves stopping for photos. There's a photo I took with a Brazilian soccer team that lacked any understanding of personal boundaries. Somewhere in Rio de Janeiro, there's a picture of me with a shocked look on my face for reasons you can imagine. Tootsie Mae was a costume that men, young and old, but particularly old, orbited like spun confectionery sugar around a paper cone. The Navy Pier players made appearances at city parades and events, like an event to celebrate the new vendors at the pier. I found myself on the lap of the owner of the Billy Goat Tavern as he yelled quietly in my ear, Cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. I reciprocated. No Coke, Pepsi. I love cheeseburgers with a white-hot passion, so the feeling was mutual. But the wackiest and perhaps most endearing encounter was with a fella, Mr. Surreal himself, who frequented Navy Pier and stopped by to hear us sing. He would often approach us after a set. He had a fondness for my shoes, the pink Mary Janes. It eventually became clear that he had a foot fetish, which grossed out my fellow players. I was less affected. Having had a boyfriend in high school with a foot fetish, I felt pretty well healed in this department. He was an eccentric person, often dressed in a brown suit and straw fedora. You couldn't miss him. Scrotum watch was interrupted by fellow singers, signaling to me that he was in the audience. After a set, he would approach to say hello and compliment me on my shoes. Inside the atrium, we performed on a pretty high platform, affording him a closer look. Over a period of months, he grew more confident, and one day, he reached out and gripped my heel. Before I backed away, I hesitated. I was curious as to what he was trying to accomplish. He lifted up my foot and pushed it back down to the ground to indicate he wanted me to tap or clog my foot on the stage. Paige Front, a streetwise newspaper journalist from the 20s in a flapper outfit, grabbed my arm to pull me away. I didn't see the harm in tapping my foot on the floor, so I did it a few times and stopped before he had too much fun. The next time he visited, he handed me an index card with a handwritten poem... I'm a sentimental freak, so I still have it. It's titled, Tap, Tap, Tap. I heard the tapping sound. It reads, I like women's shoes and boots so much. It has a hard sole and a hard heel. The heel could be high or not so low. The shoes and boots could be shiny or suede, and the shoes also could be wooden. She'd do the tapping on the hard floor. I miss this band of misfits and the laughs we had together. We see each other on social media and catch fragments of each other's lives. Some of us continue to hustle for acting and singing gigs and others have moved on to other pastures, perhaps to return to it again someday. Or not. We have peer players on Broadway stages pre-COVID. Others still in Chicago, like me, 
or around the country, acting, directing, or writing, or producing, or singing, or having families, and maybe taking them to a place like the pier. We all look back on our own versions of this time in our lives, and no matter the version, I'm pretty sure it's destined to check that box next to weird. Good weird. And thanks for being the first guest on our show. So tell the listeners a little bit about what you had going on up until the pandemic and now during this hibernation period. It's been interesting. You know, it started out uh, that I was already cast in two plays. And so um, I was in rehearsal uh, for one of them. And we had done all of our table work uh, online on, via Zoom. So, you know, crawling through the scene uh, bit by bit, talking through the subtext, talking through the characters and what our motivations are and yada, yada, yada. And then uh, we had to stop because it got to the point where it was like, we can't really progress until we can get in a room together and begin to stage this thing. So it, it was paused and paused again and paused again. And eventually they just said, look, you know, your life has to continue on and we don't know when we're going to do this. So, um, so that's sort of been on the shelf for a while. Uh, the other play I was cast in is, is, um, was in, had a little bit more, you know, sort of a sense that this wasn't going to change anytime soon. So, uh, we did a couple read-throughs, and then we paused as well. So um, after that, I think I just kind of felt like, you know, a little creatively, I mean, I was a little creatively stuck, not very excited about doing much of anything. Um, I um, I found myself really just, you know, uh, I don't know, checking out. And... Um, uh, we had, you know, I, I still get voiceover auditions coming in from my agent and self tapes for, you know, TV and commercials and stuff like that. So that stuff still, you know, sort of keeps my head in the game a little bit. Um, but it wasn't until more recently, toward the end of this year, this past year, that I began to feel like I needed to generate something or I might lose my mind. Um, so I, um, I just decided to try photography. It's kind of weird. Um, but I, I was like, you know, uh, I was inspired by a book of photographs that were taken of, uh, streets that around the country that have been named after Martin Luther King Jr. And they were really powerful and interesting. And you could just stare at them forever and pick up all kinds of information and and I thought, oh, you know what? I I want to do something sort of like that, something that evokes that kind of like reflection about COVID nineteen in Chicago. And I want to overlay it or juxtapose it with um, images and information about the Spanish flu in Chicago in nine between nineteen eighteen and nineteen, and all the other things that were going on. So taking images that are also include like, you know, the Provident Hospital, which is the first black owned, black run hospital 
uh, and in, it was located here in Chicago, that was now a uh, property of Cook County Hospital. Uh, but it um, has historical significance. It came up in that time period during the Spanish flu because they were segregated in their health care. And um, all of the civil unrest and racial injustice that was going on leading up to the 1919 Chicago riots uh, that happened that summer, the Red Summer. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting time then where all these different things are layered on top of each other. And most art and poetry, and I mean, from poetry to literature to music, there really isn't much at all referring to the Spanish flu. Just, you can't find it. They just wanted it to kind of go away. They just wanted to disappear. And so um, I thought, well, no, COVID should not be that way. We, we really, really should, I think, reflect on that. And I think people years and years from now would be interested to know. And, and so I thought, I'll take pictures of places in Chicago, and I'll, and I'll just match them to things that were happening earlier, you know, in 1918 and 19. And just see, I don't know. I'm not, I, mean, I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. It may just sit on my computer. Um, but it's just something kind of fun and interesting and quirky and something that I um, can just do on my own and have control over. And then when you asked me to write this story, it was really great because it just it gave me a reason uh, to really put this kind of, you know, these this jumble of memories on paper and make something out of it. And there is a nonprofit or uh, not a nonprofit, but a, a volunteer organization that I co-founded um, that I have since taken a step back from. But for the four years of uh, Trump administration, um, we were. Uh, really there to help raise money for organizations that serve people who are most vulnerable uh, under that administration and the crazy policies that they were putting out there. So um, toward the end of the year, I was also able to put together and edit a a video that um, also kind of, you know, scratched that itch for me. Speed round questions. Uh, what is the weirdest costume or outfit you've ever been asked to wear? Well, actually, I would say it's a penguin costume. A, pe- yeah. a penguin costume. Someone asked you to wear a penguin costume and you said yes. Yeah, it was part of the gig at Navy <laughs> Pier. <laughs> so if uh, if I wanted to make some extra dough uh, out uh-huh. over the holiday uh-huh. and I wasn't uh, on a shift to sing in the group, I could pick up a shift as a mm-hmm. penguin. What is your recurring music anxiety dream? Lately, because of COVID, I've been having anxiety dreams that also combine those actor, singer anxiety dreams with COVID. So with maskless, oh, wearing, yeah. maskless yeah. people. And mm-hmm. so I wake up because I realize that people are like breathing on me and they're all over. <laughs> oh, no. no mask. It's, and ger- I'm like running it's to- germy. <laughs> really? The germs wake the me ger- up, and it's <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, yeah. It's been. I we're gonna. It's gonna be PTSD for a while. I, mean, I think so. I think so. Have you ever been in the middle of a gig and felt like you were in over your head? 
Oh, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, actually, you know, um, in over my head and things falling on my head, but, uh, yeah, I, I, (laughs) um, well, uh, foiled again was booked to do a WBEZ, uh, New Year's Eve event. And it originally was supposed to be somewhere where there was like a lot of room to stand, like a music venue where people can stand. Um, and dance and get into it. And they had other acts. They had a, a band, full-on band playing as well. But they had us as part of the evening. And we were, uh, for whatever reason, they had to move the event last minute to Victory Gardens, the Biograph Theater. And uh, they put us on the main stage. They had moth going on upstairs in the black box space, which I think was like a better space for what they were doing. Um and they had us downstairs on the main stage and people would st- were standing, you know, like in front of their chairs that flip up, you know, just kind of trying to like awkwardly dance in the little spot, you know, in front of their chair. <laughs> it was very weird. So, Nadja, you know, so it's a little sparse in terms of attendance <laughs> because uh, that wasn't, that didn't look fun. And, and so we did our stick and then um as the night wore on and the music kept going we weren't singing anymore but we were dancing up on stage a lot of other people came up on stage and uh my husband was there my parents were there and the um whatever the flats were from the set that was going on that stage at the time uh whatever play they had going on the the scenery started to fall over onto audience <laughs> the guests and Ben was like catching them and like delicately trying to place like pieces of the scenery onto the ground uh and and finding places like throughout and I was like you know I feel like this has played itself out I think it's time to go <laughs> and scene um, but yeah, so that was a fun night. Um, that was a wild, uh, kind of crazy evening. Yeah. Have you had any, uh, what is the weirdest or most sort of like egg on your face moment, uh, as a performer? Well, uh, I think the story with you is one of the funniest. Oh. You were doing a one-woman comedy show, and mm-hmm. I was your accompanist, and we were backstage, and it was like moments before you were going on, and we were checking our mics, and I lean over to you, and I say, I really have to poo, and the, in, on, in front of the curtain, in front of hundreds of educators, hundreds of educators, it might have been one of your first one-woman show experiences, sure. the MC says, and... Your mic is on. (laughs) And so not only did I broadcast to hundreds of people that I had to poo right before we went out on stage, I totally sabotaged you. I sabotaged you because everybody in that audience thought you were the one that said you had to poo. And then the curtains open, da-da-da-da-da-da, and you have to go out and do some waka-waka. I have to sit there sheepishly at the piano feeling like I've ruined your life. I've ruined your career because of my nervous bodily functions. It was the best 
ever. I mean, I am, I, I'm so glad that you're moment, still my friend, honestly. No, even in the moment, <laughs> even in the moment, it was too funny for me to be mad. I, I was just, it was just too funny. I, I thought, was, well, I'll never see these people again, but this is hilarious. And that is the sign of a true professional, Anne, that <laughs> you can compartmentalize that and we can still work together. You have no, you hold no animosity towards me. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny, so funny. foiled again. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how that came to be. Yeah, so we were all singing at Navy Pier. We were in that a cappella octet that I've written about in the story that I gave you. And we, um, um, I mean, we were all friends at the pier, you know, and, and Rob was doing a cabaret show at Davenport and he was trying to you know, get audience, and that was becoming more and more difficult with these shows uh, to just get them on his own because he was sort of new to the cabaret scene, and you know, this was early on in his career. So he asked uh, Allison and I if we'd be interested in doing a holiday show with him, uh, just sort of as as a trio, and um, and so we said yes. Uh, similarly, because we were just like curious, and why not? Could be fun that kind of thing. And um, yeah, and we put together some arrangements that were our own, that Allison's stamp was on, because she has this really amazing style and approach to her um, uh, to her arrangements that I just feel like it, when you hear one of her arrangements, you just know it's hers. And um, we sang, you know, together, had fun, and we, we named ourselves Foiled Again, uh, sort of on a lark because we really weren't sure if we were going to do this ever again, but we just gave ourselves a name uh, because we, we thought, well, just in case we want to do this again, let's just name ourselves something. And it, it went off really well. I mean, people really enjoyed it. And of course, it helped get more audience when you have three actors, uh, singers uh, coming together and, and getting their friends and family there. And um, but it stuck, and we did have a mutual fondness for Joni Mitchell uh, that just came out of conversations and such, and um, and it became kind of fun to think down that road together too. You know, we weren't so sort of strictly cabaret. Cabaret happened to be the format we started in because it just felt uh, like a natural fit in that you know we understood the the medium enough and we had the access to the space to perform and Rob had started there, um, you know, doing that uh, format. So we did that and we focused our shows not on ourselves so much as um, the composer of the music and stories behind the writer, you know, and um, so we would kind of do these sort of, uh, yeah, kind of doc almost documentary style <laughs> cabaret shows. We did the Brill Building, um, 
Yeah, and that was really fun. We focused on four songwriting duos, you know, uh, and we uh, it was a lot of fun to put these kinds of things together. We um, we uh, focused on Harold Arlen. We did a Harold Arlen show. Um, so you know, we're talking about then jazz, sixties. Uh, Joni Mitchell's like from the 70s to now, practically. Um, and she kind of spanned, you know, sort of goes from folk to jazz. Um, so we didn't have a genre that we were locked into so much. Um, we were, we just didn't shy away from any of them. We did a Dolly Parton. Uh, we've done, you know, different, different, you know, so country. And it's, uh, it was just really, a really fun, creative project if you know and we sang so naturally together because we had been singing a cappella in this group you know it's it became very easy to just breathe together and without thinking about it and um we had voices uh both Allison and I are altos Rob's a tenor and we were able to sound like one voice when we wanted to uh and that was also really helpful so, you know, yeah, we just, um, we had some natural abilities to work together and sing together that we didn't want to walk away from. It was hard, um, even though it wasn't, uh, you know, necessarily the first thing we were doing. It was always over here to the side, kind of something we were doing over there. And um, we eventually put an album together and um, sort of called Blanket of Winter. It's focused on some of the holiday tunes we do in our sh- holiday sh- shows, um, but then also some other songs that we put in there that are very winter-centric, just, you know. Um, and- you you uh, brought a Katie Lang song, right, today? Yeah. Yeah, Katie Lang song. Uh, it's Katie Lang and Bob Telson wrote it, and they uh, wrote a song called Barefoot, and it was, I believe, written for a film, an indie film. Uh, it's a bit old now, but um, uh, the indie film was kind of wacky, but I, and I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, but the uh, song is just gorgeous and haunting and interesting, and we all loved Katie Lang. We all still do. And um, so, yeah, uh, Allison did a beautiful arrangement of it, and so that's the one I decided I'd share today. I'd like to thank our guest, Anne Sheridan-Smith, who is such a talent and a dear friend of mine for being on our show. If you'd like to see pictures of Anne on Navy Pier and the handwritten poem from her story called Tap, 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 you can view them on our website. Foiled Again has an album called Blanket of Winter, available on Apple, Spotify, and CD Baby. The Weird Gig Podcast has been produced by Kara Kesselring and Patrick Williams. Theme song written by Kara Kesselring and performed by Kara Kesselring, Patrick Williams, and Vance Okashevsky. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook. Subscribe on the Weird Gig Podcast on YouTube. Leave us comments on our weirdgig.com website and tell your friends and neighbors about our podcast. They don't have to be musicians to enjoy the show. Join us next week as we discover new tales of a gigging musician. And remember, come for the story, stay for the weird.
Through the snow.